Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Primary care patients who present with multiple physical symptoms are oftentimes challenging, at times frustrating, and frequently time-consuming. In this study, Sansone and colleagues sought to determine if there was any relationship between the reporting of multiple symptoms and borderline personality. They suspected this association because previous studies have confirmed associations between borderline personality and somatic preoccupation. If the two turned out to be related, it would provide one explanation for behavior often seen in primary care. To explore this issue, the researchers surveyed internal medicine outpatients as they entered the lobby of a primary care clinic served by resident physicians. Over the month of the study, 381 consecutive patients were surveyed. Each participant completed a survey booklet in which they were asked whether they had experienced any of 35 physical symptoms over the past week. In addition, two self-report measures explored the symptoms of borderline personality disorder. The results show that the total number of physical symptoms positively and significantly correlated with both measures of borderline personality disorder. There was no distinct symptom profile that was specifically endorsed by participants with borderline personality features. These findings suggest that patients in primary care settings who present with multiple physical symptoms may suffer from borderline personality disorder. The prevalence of metabolic syndrome in the U.S. adult population has been estimated to range from 22% to 34%. Studies suggest that Hispanics may have slightly higher rates of metabolic syndrome than non-Hispanics in the general population, and individuals with mental illness may be particularly at risk. Although studies have identified the frequency with which distinct metabolic syndrome risk factors occur within the homeless population, prevalence rates for homeless individuals meeting criteria for the full syndrome are scarce. Thus, the authors of the next article sought to fill this gap by examining the rates of metabolic syndrome among a group of predominantly Hispanic psychiatric outpatients enrolled in a homeless program located in South Florida. Data for the retrospective cross-sectional analysis were obtained from a record review of 122 adult patients. The prevalence of metabolic syndrome was 29.5%. The rates of metabolic syndrome for homeless individuals with psychiatric illness were comparable to those found in the general adult population in the United States. And although other studies have suggested an increased prevalence for metabolic syndrome among Hispanics, the obtained rate of 28.9% for the Hispanic sample is consistent with estimated prevalence of non-Hispanic individuals in the United States. Clinicians should be concerned about the cardiovascular health of homeless individuals and include routine screening for the presence of cardiovascular risk factors that constitute metabolic syndrome. 
Additional research geared at determining rates of cardiovascular risk factors among other Hispanic groups should be undertaken to provide data about genetic and lifestyle factors that may impact the development of metabolic syndrome. Depression imposes a substantial economic impact on society and is expected to become the second leading cause of disease burden in the world by the year 2030. While previous studies have analyzed the cost of depression, few have focused on depression costs in Asia. With this in mind, the authors of the next article looked at the cost of major depressive disorders in Japan. The researchers used a top-down costing approach based on national Japanese health statistics in 2008 to examine direct medical costs, workplace costs, and depression-related suicide costs. Direct medical costs included both inpatient and outpatient medical costs, while workplace costs included both absenteeism and presenteeism costs. The results show that depression does impose a substantial burden on Japanese society with an estimated annual national cost of approximately $11 billion. Indirect costs, such as depression-related suicide costs and workplace costs, comprised 86% of the total costs. These findings highlight the urgent need for policymakers to allocate resources to strategies that prevent and manage depression in the Japanese population. Depression is frequent in patients with chronic liver disease and cirrhosis and is present in up to 15% of patients on the liver transplant waiting list and in up to 57% of patients with cirrhosis. Studies have found that patients with chronic hepatitis C virus infection frequently complain of depression and difficulty performing tasks and often have neuropsychological impairment in the domains of processing speed and working memory. However, few studies have been done in the general population with cirrhosis. And the question of whether the cognitive impairment due to depression and cirrhosis is different from or incremental to the cognitive impairment of hepatic encephalopathy in patients with advanced liver disease has not been thoroughly considered. In the next article, Stewart and colleagues sought to determine whether patients with cirrhosis and depressive symptoms have a different cognitive profile from patients with cirrhosis without depressive symptoms. 75 adult outpatients with a diagnosis of cirrhosis without overt hepatic encephalopathy were included in the study. 23 of those patients were classified as depressed. A comprehensive neuropsychological battery was used to capture the cognitive profiles of the depressed and non-depressed patients. The findings suggest that depressive symptoms are associated with worsened cognitive function in patients with cirrhosis. In linear regression analyses, decreases in cognitive function were associated with higher Beck depression inventory scores for the domain of working memory with a trend toward significance for the domain of visual perception. Because of the association between cirrhosis and depressive symptoms, the authors conclude that an assessment of mood disorders in patients with cirrhosis is important. And since depressive symptoms may worsen cognitive impairment in patients with cirrhosis, treatment of depression should be considered for these patients. 
Two articles and our CME activity in this issue are on the topic of Alzheimer's disease or cognitive impairment. The negative impact of Alzheimer's disease is not limited to patients alone. Caregivers also experience negative consequences, especially as the condition progresses. The patient's level of cognitive decline, extent of difficulty in performing activities of daily living, personality changes, and psychiatric symptoms have all been noted to increase caregiver burden. The objective of the next study was to determine the factors associated with self-reported outcomes of adults caring for a person with Alzheimer's disease. To better understand the impact of Alzheimer's disease progression on caregivers, the authors placed specific focus on quantifying the effects of Alzheimer's disease symptom severity on caregiver outcomes including caregiver burden, psychiatric conditions, health care resource use, and lost work productivity. To accomplish this, they performed a database analysis of the Alzheimer's Disease Caregiver Study, a cross-sectional caregiver-reported study conducted in 2007. Data were collected nationwide via the Internet and in eight U.S. cities. Participants were 1,077 unpaid adult caregivers of Alzheimer's disease patients. Symptom severity was measured using the revised memory and behavioral problem checklist. Caregiver outcomes included the caregiver burden scale, the diagnosis of anxiety and depression, use of the emergency room, hospitalization, number of physician visits, and missed workdays in the past six months. The authors found that Alzheimer's disease symptom severity was a significant predictor of all caregiver outcomes except physician visits. Each unit increase in severity score corresponded with a unit increase in caregiver burden, specifically physician visits, absenteeism, likelihood of using the emergency room, hospitalization, anxiety, and depression. The study findings indicate that Alzheimer's disease symptom severity is significantly associated with poor caregiver outcomes. Therefore, treatments that slow Alzheimer's disease symptom progression may be beneficial to caregiver outcomes. The cholinesterase inhibitor, rivastigmine, is approved for treatment of mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. However, it is not possible to predict which individuals will benefit from treatment. While cognition remains a key efficacy measure, additional concerns, such as activities of daily living, must be assessed to gain broader insight into the impact of treatment. With this in mind, Sadowski and colleagues performed a retrospective analysis of a large clinical trial to determine the percentage of persons with Alzheimer's disease who have a sustained response with rivastigmine, as well as the magnitude of this sustained response and baseline patient characteristics predictive of the response. Patients who improved on the cognitive subscale of the Alzheimer's Disease Assessment Scale and Alzheimer's Disease Cooperative Study Activities of Daily Living Scale at Week 16 and maintained the improvement at Week 24 were identified as sustained responders. The researchers found that more patients with Alzheimer's disease had sustained improvements on the two measures with rivastigmine versus placebo. 
The factors predictive of a sustained response to treatment included baseline scores for the two scales and the mini-mental state examination, as well as treatment, country of treatment, and time since first symptom was diagnosed by a physician. Sadowski and colleagues conclude that understanding factors predictive of sustained cholinesterase inhibitor treatment response, such as baseline patient characteristics, should help to optimize Alzheimer's disease management and encourage compliance by allowing more realistic expectations of treatment effects. Next, we invite you to visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to engage in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute Case Conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute's Memory Disorder Clinic. In this issue of The Companion, we highlight the case of a 66-year-old man who presented with the chief complaint of memory problems as well as sleep issues. Does the patient meet the criteria for dementia? Does he have mild cognitive impairment or an underlying psychiatric disorder? What should his treatment plan entail? Answer these and other questions about this patient case and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded in this exciting new online offering. Clozapine has been reported on rare occasions to cause acute renal failure due to acute interstitial nephritis. The authors of the next article discuss a case of acute renal failure associated with the onset of clozapine treatment and compare it to seven other cases reported in the literature. They review the signs and symptoms of the hypersensitivity response caused by clozapine and make recommendations for early detection. The researchers speculate that clozapine may interact with nephrotoxic medications such as antibiotics to create the conditions for acute renal failure. In the eight cases reviewed, fever was the most commonly mentioned sign of hypersensitivity, followed by eosinophilia, which will be noted in the patient's weekly complete blood count. Both usually occur within two weeks of initiating clozapine treatment. Therefore, clinicians should monitor the patient's renal function. The presence of excess protein in the urine may be the earliest indicator of renal damage. In the author's case, clozapine caused a high fever, but no other indications of infection. Frank renal failure occurred only after antibiotics were added to the medication regimen. Several other case reports also suggest that the addition of antibiotics exacerbated or contributed to the occurrence of kidney failure. Many antibiotics affect metabolizing potential or modify cellular drug transport, and such changes increase the risk of renal failure. The authors indicate that clinicians should be cautious when interpreting fever as a sign of infection in a patient recently started on clozapine therapy. Fever may not indicate infection, but could be a sign of a hypersensitivity response. In that case, treatment with an antibiotic could precipitate frank renal failure. Can a gluten-free diet alleviate behavioral symptoms in patients with celiac disease and ADHD? 
The author of the next study sought to answer this question by initiating a gluten-free diet for at least six months in patients with ADHD who tested positive for celiac disease. After initiation of the gluten-free diet, patients or their parents reported a significant improvement in their behavior and functioning compared to the period before celiac diagnosis and treatment. There is evidence that ADHD is not only a separate disorder, but also a symptom of various other diseases. Celiac disease is prevalent among patients with ADHD, and current evidence supports checking anti-gluten antibodies in these patients. The author suggests that celiac disease be included in the ADHD symptom checklist and that clinicians can help patients avoid drug treatment in some instances by adding new diagnostic tools. Have you ever encountered an elderly patient who developed new, excessively intense interests or compulsive behaviors? Have you ever wondered what might cause such behavioral changes? or have been perplexed at how to help patients with obsessive thoughts or compulsions? If you have, then the latest case vignette in our popular series, Rounds in the General Hospital from Dr. Theodore Stern and colleagues at Massachusetts General Hospital, will help to facilitate the diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment of patients with similar symptoms. When providing health care to the elderly, the medical physician often assumes leadership of the treatment team. Periodically, however, the major role is assigned to one of the members of the team who would otherwise serve in a supportive capacity. In the case presentation from this issue's psychotherapy casebook, an opportunity arose for the physical therapist to take the leading role in the patient's rehabilitation. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to explore the team dynamics that place the psychiatrist in the supporting role of helping the patient to adapt. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings and our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings, the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, and special web-based interactive content.